This podcast contains plot spoilers for movies, television, and has numerous pop culture references. Adult language and mature themes are present. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, welcome in to another episode of a podcast of Brian Antiquities. Each episode, we tackle an underappreciated relic of film and uncover its layers, explore its meanings, and try to determine if it stands the test of time. I am your host, Jeff. And I'm your other host, Harry. And on this episode, we play The Game. The Game. So let me, The Game. Let me ask you, let's do some reminiscing as we always do at the top of the show. What are your memories of The Game? My first memory of The Game is seeing you and your dad walking out of the theater of The Game. <laughs> <laughs> interesting okay yeah that's that's what i remember because i remember asking you was it good and you said yeah it was awesome so that's my first memory of the game uh that's uh that's really good man i was gonna say my first memory of the game was uh going to the film with uh with my dad went to it in uh, september of 1997 when it came out yeah that, that's my memory too it was it was awesome then and it's aged very well for me as well Oh, uh, no, I was just going to say, so is this a movie that you own yourself? Uh, absolutely it is, yes. Okay. Yeah, I own it too. I haven't watched this movie in probably, I'd say, a good five to seven years, somewhere in that range. So it was interesting going back to it to see how it stands up. So we'll get into that as we move forward here. Well, that's great. A little bit about the film. The game uh, obviously stars Michael Douglas as our uh, main uh, protagonist, Nicholas Van Orton. Also starring Sean Penn as Conrad Van Orton, Deborah Kara Unger as Christine. This film was directed by David Fincher. The Finch. I'm going to hit you. The Finch, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with some trivia here. Okay, uh, shoot. So the game originally had a budget of about $50 million. Uh, it was released uh, September 12, 1997 on 2,400 screens, wide release. It had a final worldwide gross of about $109 million. Now, only about, about half of that was from domestic markets. Back in that time in Hollywood, uh, film success, financial success, was largely dependent on its domestic numbers, and the international numbers were not really taken too much into account considering a movie's success. Nowadays, obviously, that's much different. Studios certainly take into account uh, large international markets when, uh, when considering the overall viability of a film. Uh, so certainly at that time... Well, not a flop because basically it only made back its money domestically. It certainly was not considered a success. A couple other notable. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, you know, nowadays that would be considered a pretty successful film, but at the time, uh, certainly not. It, it's also not a movie that translates very well into other languages. Uh, so that that could be a factor in its overall uh, release numbers. Interesting. A couple other. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's no other language that has. It's just a game. A game! It's like, I mean, that, that can't be translated into other languages? I, I think probably that one line could probably be translated into other languages. A couple other releases from that time, September 97, also saw the release of L.A. Confidential and uh, The Peacemaker. Oh, I like The Peacemaker. I remember that one. That's the Clooney yeah. one, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's the sort of his sort of first big foray back into... Motion pictures after after leaving ER. You know, Duncan for Apple Clooney. I love it. He's done okay for himself. Oh, 
yes. <laughs> yeah, he's okay. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy his, his, his method acting. <laughs> yeah, That's method yeah. acting. Now, a couple of uh, notable actors in this film. Uh, I'm sure you'll appreciate this. Mr. Armin Mueller-Stahl. Yes. He, yeah, he's great. This guy's a workhorse. According to IMDb, he has over 130 acting credits to his name, stretching all the way back to the late 50s. Really? Now, still, and these are North American movies or what? Uh, mostly North American work, but uh, some foreign language films. Great character actor. Uh, he still does work, but uh, definitely diminished in recent years. Uh, the guy's almost 85, so doesn't do a lot of work anymore, but he's still out there. He's like the Persian Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean, like Morgan Freeman plays Morgan Freeman. This guy plays himself. And yeah. he has that way of speaking and acting, and it's almost like, and it's like, that's all he does in every Definitely, movie. Yeah. Definitely has a very distinctive voice. He's he's actually German, but, oh. uh, <laughs> you know, I guess, there you go. Uh, another uh, prolific actor here, for those of us who love character actors, is James Rebhorn, who plays Jim Feingold. In the yes. film, yeah, he's great. Uh, he has—he's uh, a workhorse too. Over 120 acting credits to his name, going back to the late 70s. He uh, actually. In, oh, sorry, you go ahead. Yeah, no, no, he's—he's uh, he's been in lots of movies and TV shows. He was in *Scent of a Woman*, *Independence Day*, and I know you'll like this. Is he even played the district attorney who prosecuted the cast of *Seinfeld*? Yep, yep. That shows rather maligned series finale. Uh, I remember. Yep. Yeah. This guy actually uh, passed away recently, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he passed away March 21st, 2014. He, uh, But he was still active right up until his death. He had recurring roles on both TV, the TV show Homeland and White Collar. You'll be missed. Yeah, he always, I don't know, for me, I always saw him as an asshole. He just came off as, like, not a, not, not a douche, but he just came off as the prick. You know, he always, he was always in that role. I mean, again, I remember him from, what, Independence Day, Seinfeld... This movie, maybe a couple other similar type of roles in other movies, and he always was yeah. just kind of the prick, but doing his job, but the prick. Yeah, he, he kind of has this like thin, non-trustworthy smile and uh, weird eyes. You definitely, you definitely don't get leading man, hero, nice guy off of this guy's face. That's for sure. No, you don't. Now, a couple of my favorite parts, points of trivia. Uh, moving on to the director, David Fincher. Better known for films like Seven, Fight Club, more recently films like The Social Network. He actually is not particularly proud of his work on this film. That's mainly due to the problems of the third act. And he blames uh, himself for not being able to figure out uh, how to get through some of those problems. Hmm, now, this is uh, Fincher's an interesting guy, veteran of music videos and TV commercials prior to a feature film. He's directed artists as Madonna, The Rolling Stones, Paul Abdul, lots more. And he actually won an MTV Music Award for Best Direction in a Music Video for uh, Madonna's Vogue, very famous song. Ah, interesting. Very interesting. Now, he probably would have won that year anyway, as he was nominated three times in that category. Uh, for three different music videos in that same year. Uh, the only yeah. thing I remember reading about this guy is that he used to work at ILM, and yeah. I, th- I think he he did some matte work on Temple of Doom. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He uh, he worked in the matte photography department on Temple of Doom. Uh, he was also an assistant assistant cameraman on Return of the Jedi. Are you serious? Yeah. 
Oh, wow. A very interesting start to his career. His feature film debut was none other than everybody's favorite entry in the Alien series, Alien <laughs> 3. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, that's the movie he won't talk about ever, right? Pretty much? Well, yeah, he, uh, if you, for example, if you want to watch the special features on the Alien uh, Blu-ray set, uh, David Fincher is nowhere to be found and barely referenced. And uh, hey, uh, you got to respect the guy for having a successful career after that pile of shit. Uh, but that movie was, the issues for that movie were not just about directing, it's about everything. We could probably have a series of podcasts just on Alien 3 and the colossal train wreck that it was and even crazier what it could have been another uh, interesting tidbit about this movie here just to wrap up the trivia jodie foster was originally cast in the conrad role obviously not as michael douglas's brother but as his daughter oh Uh, interesting yeah that might have been an interesting film but michael douglas didn't like the idea because there's only a 17 year age difference between the two so uh, the role was rewritten for sean penn he became the younger brother instead i think What's that ironic, works better anyways but anyways uh, we'll t- talk about it, that. it definitely works better and the daughter they're trying to think of how those some of those scenes play out as we'll get to i don't think it would really work what's interesting though is michael douglas actually played jodie foster's father in an earlier film the film napoleon and samantha which came out in 1972 so oh. i guess uh, he thought that probably made him look too old i don't know vanity and <laughs> yeah Vanity. All right. Any uh, any other uh, starting thoughts before we jump into this guy? No, I, I think we could just go right into it. I think my thoughts will develop as we move forward. Okay. Happy 48th birthday to emotionally bankrupt billionaire Nicholas Van Orden. This is the man who has everything, but he never cracks a smile. A mysterious lunch invitation takes Nicholas to an expensive restaurant where we meet Conrad, Nicholas's much younger, much more jovial brother. Conrad offers Nicholas his birthday gift, an enigmatic card bearing the logo of Consumer Recreation Services. What is it? All Conrad can offer is that they make your life fun. That evening, after a dinner alone, Nicholas takes a call from his ex-wife, and we learn that Nicholas's father took his own life on his 48th birthday. At the CRS offices the next day, Nicholas meets Jim Feingold, a friendly but homely fellow who tells Nicholas that the game as they call it, offers whatever is lacking. It's like an adventure vacation, only instead of you going to it, it comes to you. Nicholas agrees to a battery of tests, but after spending the day filling out forms, running on a treadmill, and watching a bizarre film montage that would make Alex DeLarge blush, Feingold sends him on his way. But it's okay. Nicholas can keep the pen. In the boardroom, we see Nicholas's fetish for detail as he read Penn's a legal contract like a high school English teacher on a Wikipedia essay. His patience is thinner than cheap toilet paper. While the assembled executives toil under the looming deadline, Nicholas takes a call from CRS. His application was declined. That evening, as Nicholas pulls up his driveway, he finds a body lying in the ground in the exact spot his father landed so many years before. On closer inspection, Nicholas discovers that This is not a body, but rather a lifeless, life-sized doll, a harlequin. In its mouth is a key embossed with three letters, C-R-S. As he examines the doll in his office, his attention is drawn to the nightly news. It seems the newscaster is addressing him personally. Yep, C-R-S has hijacked the telecast, and now it's time for the ground rules of the game. Figuring out the object of the game 
is the object of the game. That sure clears things up. Through the looking glass and off on his business trip to fire one Anson Bear, publisher of children's books, Nicholas sees the world now through the lens of the game. He's not sure what is part of the game and what is real, but he is sure of one thing. It's time for Anson Bear to step down. A little trouble with Nicholas's briefcase, however, means that this is Anson's lucky day. That night, Conrad has stood Nicholas up for their dinner date, but don't worry. The waitress spices things up by spilling a glass of red wine all over Nicholas and his expensive suit. Having little patience for his upper-crust attitude, she tells him off and gets fired for her trouble. That should be the end of that, but a note arrives at the table advising that he chase after her. When he catches up to her, a man falls down in the street and the waitress gives him CPR. The next thing they know, they are on the way to the hospital in the back of an ambulance to file a report. Once they arrive, however, the lights go out and the place empties as if a director just called for a crew to clear the set. They take the elevator up to the lobby and Nicholas has forgotten his briefcase down below. But that's okay, it wouldn't open anyway. Something is familiar about this lobby. It's the CRS building. Christine trips the alarm, and soon the two are being chased down an alley by security guards and an angry dog. They escape, and seem to have done a little bonding. Nicholas guides them back to his office, where the two can shower and call a cab. Christine is taking things in stride. That is a nice red bra, by the way. So far, the game has lived up to expectations. Tonight was fun. Nicholas's assistant calls in the morning with instructions to pick up his credit card at the Claremont Hotel, where he has no memory of staying. But he's playing the game now, so with a look of bemusement, he arrives at the hotel and gets a key to the room. Bemusement gives way to horror, however, as Nicholas sees the state of things. The room looks like it housed a cocaine-fueled orgy hosted by Lindsay Lohan and Charlie Sheen. Porn on the TV, coke rails lined up on a mirror, and the centerpiece, Nicholas's briefcase, wide open and filled with Polaroids of last night's party. He cleans up and storms off to confront who he thinks is behind this, Anson Bear. Nicholas barges into Bear's hotel room with his lawyer in tow and throws some colorful accusations his way. Bear takes it like a champ, though, and plays it cool while Nicholas runs out his charge. Anson has taken the severance offer. He signed the papers that morning. Oops. That was awkward. Nicholas tries to explain to his lawyer back at the office, but the story sounds crazy. Nicholas does have two leads, though. A mysterious hand crank left in an envelope for him, and the woman in the Polaroids happens to be wearing a familiar red bra. Nicholas arrives at home, but something is amiss. His house has been broken into and vandalized with glowing paint. Conrad shows up in a panic. Turns out CRS has been messing with him as well. It seems Conrad's game never ended, and the two get the heck out of there in a hurry. As they race away, a car blows a tire. While Nicholas looks for the spare in the trunk, Conrad opens the glove compartment and a pile of CRS keys fall out. Conrad freaks and accuses Nicholas of being behind the whole thing. They hash out all of their old issues, and Conrad runs off, leaving Nicholas alone in the night. After a frightening run-in with a runaway cab, a long drive, and a short pier, Nicholas puts the hand crank to good use and he's on to the next level of the game. But he's had enough. He tracks down Christine and shows up at her house. But it's all a set, and he and Christine are merely players. Nicholas and Christine flee the scene as the armed goons sh shoot up the place. In the car, Christine lays it all out for him. It's a scam, a con. There is no game. Remember how rich Nicholas is? Well, CRS certainly does, and they want their payday. While trying to figure out his next move, Nicholas falls for the old tranquilizer and the coffee trick. He's out cold and out in the cold. Nicholas wakes up in Mexico at an all-inclusive resort with a pina colada in one hand and a beautiful bikini babe in the other. Oh, wait, no. 
If there is anything more unsettling than a Mexican graveyard, I don't want to know about it. This is rock bottom. All of the money, luxury, and power have been stripped away. Only one thing remains. Revenge. He pawns his only remaining possession, his father's watch, then grabs a taco and heads for the border on a bus. He hitches back to his mansion, cleans himself up, grabs a good book, and sets to putting this whole thing to bed. He tracks down Jim Feingold, not a CRS executive, but an actor, and at gunpoint forces him to breach the security at CRS. At the CRS office tower, they enter a cafeteria filled with all the players from the past several days, including Christine. Seated at a table with another CRS goon, planning the next con, she looks up in surprise. Nicholas takes her hostage as security guards storm the room. She leads him up to the roof where there is no escape. She tries to convince him that it's futile. They don't care enough about her to... Wait a minute, where'd you get that gun? The guard had an automatic, and that's a revolver. The automatic was loaded with blanks, but this gun is not. Christine tries to convince Nicholas that this is all the game, that Conrad is on the other side of the door, and it's all going to be a big birthday blast. Nicholas isn't buying it, and he trains his loaded gun on the door that the CRS guys are cutting their way through. Tension is high. Christine is screaming at the door trying to warn them that the gun is real, but the game is on autopilot now. The door bursts open and Nicholas lets fly a single bullet, right to the heart of a tuxedo-clad Conrad Van Orton. Conrad falls to the ground, dead. Now, having lost everything, his life is forfeit. He steps to the ledge, and like his father before him, he steps off. He falls for an eternity, smashes through a skylight and into a grand ballroom, right onto a giant air mattress. The ballroom is filled with the friends and family of Nicholas Van Orton, here to witness his grand entrance to his birthday party. He staggers to his feet and sees his brother, alive and well, and ready to party. The end. Can you hear this? Uh, can you hear this? I don't know if you can hear this. I can hear it. I little hear go- it. one-handed golf clap. For you right there. I'm like, well, where's where's your other hand? <laughs> you don't oh, want to know. It's, it's a family show. It's a family show. <laughs> it's the Al Bundy way, man. The Al Bundy way. Oh, that's fair. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Uh, yeah, you nailed it down the whole movie pretty good there. Yeah, let's get right into it. So why don't we dive into the first act here? Let me just ask you what your initial thoughts were in Act One. It, it's a great. It's a it's a good setup dealing with this character. Obviously, they're trying to paint him as a lonely, rich snob, very con- like a a control freak. He's very routine and mundane. You know, you can just look at it the way he celebrates his birthday, the way he treats his staff and every everyone around him. He's very condescending. You mentioned how he was going through that. That deal, he was like that, what, how did you mention it? The teacher yeah, uh, yeah. marking up the Wikipedia paper or whatever it was <laughs> in detail. Yeah. So, yeah, he was redlining that thing to death and very demanding, very cold. It's interesting, and I'll get into it later, on why he probably became that way. So, obviously, this guy, he, he since he was a kid, since his dad died, I'm assuming, based on what uh, Bear, is that the Armin Muirstahl's character? His name is Bear? Yeah. Or something, yeah. That's right. I, yeah. I think uh, later on in the movie, he said like um, his dad nev- never would have treated him that way. So it looks like he inherited the family business. Right. That's what it looks like. Yeah. That, that's what it looks like. I don't think they said it specifically. That was the only thing that I noticed out of the movie. It, it seems like he inherited everything. So he inherited every single little aspect of his dad's life. 
So he seemed like you see in those early that first introduction, he's a young happy kid until he's and he's playing. He's having a party, and then I guess he's coming home from school, frolicking. You know, kind of like um, what's that smart fat kid from The Simpsons? <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> doing that little tra la la dance as yeah, he's yeah, frolicking yeah. before you know Nelson beats the crap out of him, right? What's his that? What's that guy's name? Oh man, you if you don't know it, I don't know it. No, no, it's the guy. Who's oh, that man. little fat kid? I know exactly you're talking about. It just if only we had a way to find the answer to that. If there was a <laughs> method where we could like type in something into a into a, some kind of engine that could search things. I don't know. Anyways, uh, uh, anyways, that's it. That's interesting that you that you say that uh, actually because you know if we take a look at it, Nicholas's father really did have it all, right? He had he had the money, successful career, wife, kids from those childhood uh, home movies uh, looked like a pretty good life, and for whatever reason, he uh, he threw himself off of the roof. Now, conversely, even though we could say that Nicholas has inherited the family business. He seems to be quite the opposite of his father. He doesn't have any of that stuff. He's divorced. He doesn't have kids. Uh, obviously, there isn't a big happy life happening. Uh, a staff, they're probably scared of him. Uh, and he's a really cold, distant guy. So I thought that was an interesting, you know, sort of mirror image that they drew of him compared to his father. Uh, but Nicholas wasn't the one throwing himself off of the roof on his 48th birthday. Yes. And I guess that's interesting. We can... Maybe dive into it later on why you think. I don't know if the movie really it leaves you guessing uh, at why mm-hmm. his father probably committed suicide. It might have just been one of those things. Just the pressure, you know. What do you get? A ma- what do you get for a man who has everything? Right. Right. Uh, there's that message. Maybe his dad had everything and there was nothing else. So oh, that's said, an interesting perspective. Yeah. So, so maybe he said, you know what? Is this it? Is this all life really is? Uh, and that might be a commentary on upper class society. Absolutely. I, I think it absolutely is a commentary on upper class society. Uh, clearly money isn't everything according to the film here. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you another question here. What did you think about the introduction of the CRS to the movie when he first well, goes into the offices there? Well, the first, you know, I never had this thought before, but this time, the first time I saw CRS is I thought a total recall. It's like, it was going off in my mind, recall, recall, recall. I was like, you know, you know, it's interesting that I love how you uh, sing the recall uh, song there. That's great. I had the exact same thought. In fact, there is there's definitely some total recall parallels here. Uh, The vacation that comes to you, right? The adventure that they play with your life. That's that is total recall. Yes. Yeah, so it's drawing off that same concept, except obviously doing it in a less science fiction way. You know, the first thing you would think of is role playing, right? Yeah, you would that's think right. that, that that would be what the real uh, the situation what they would present to you. It could be something like role playing, except you just don't know how it hits you initially, and then you just go along with it. So that's the interesting concept of this movie is it, it's been so long since I've watched this, so I watch it now, I know what's coming. But I'm just trying to put myself in my sho- in the shoes of when I first watched this movie, I would say, okay, well, if these guys are saying, okay, well, we'll come to you when the game starts kind of thing. So he kind of already knows that as he leaves the offices, right? After that long and brutal <laughs> psychiatric analysis and all the medical work and everything. So obviously that's a setup later to trick the audience into thinking, Oh, are these guys actually playing a game? Or are they after, are these guys are con artists? Like they're trying to figure out his password 
trying to right. figure out all that information as we get to in the other acts, right? right. As that reveals. So that that's the reason why he, they had this in the movie, that his long stay at that office and filling out all that paperwork. But uh, yeah, I thought initially that if they were doing this for me, it would be kind of like they'll hit me with a situation and I'll do a role-playing adventure when they first come to me and that would be it. It would be like, you know, quick and dirty, done, and that's it. But then, no, this it's completely different. And we'll get into how over-the-top and ridiculous these situations get and continue and, and if it works. Because I, I won't tell you if it works for me or now or not. So I'll leave okay. that for the end. So. Well, yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Uh, obviously, that's going to be an important part of the analysis of the film. Question I do uh, Another question I do have for you is when, at what point does the game begin? To me, the game begins the minute... Nikki gives him that card. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, 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 before. I think it, it starts just before in the restaurant. Because uh, Christine is already his waitress here. You don't see her face. Right. But it is her. And she's just kind of getting under his skin a little bit. And that's how the game starts, is they're just getting under his skin a little bit. She uh, kind of interrupts them at lunch. She's not prompt with his iced tea refill. And he's clearly annoyed at this point. So just these little touches. Obviously, she's already working for CRS. She's part of the game. Yes. No, that's a good catch. I think he mentioned something that he actually, she did that to him last week or something like that. Yeah, that's in a later scene. She references this this exchange here because she says to him, it's been like this since the start. I was her waitress last week. Right. So that's, you're right. Yeah. So that's a good catch for sure. Yeah. Uh, what I really loved about the introduction of CRS is he goes in there, and this is a place that he's not into at all. They're they're getting under his skin. It's disorganized. A fine gold makes him hold his Chinese food for a second there, and you can just see the look. And I love Michael Douglas's performance here with the look on his face is complete and utter disdain for these people in this process. He's obviously uh, very successful, holds himself to very high standards, and they... And they're undercutting that every aspect of them. Yeah, uh, and, another, and, yeah. And, and to add to that, there's two 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 things here to point out when his first he first walks into that office. Obviously, it's a disaster, and they're said they're saying, "Oh, it's all disorganized because they just moved there." That gives the audience a clue later. Oh, they were really not there to begin with, right? Right. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is this is the first string that's starting to unravel what their goal is. Is because he uh, Nicholas is a man of order and a man of routine, and a man of, he's a snob. He doesn't want to get into a working class and a chaotic atmosphere. So that is why that office, in my opinion, maybe why Fincher made it look that chaotic and unorganized, is because that was the f- one of the things they were trying to do to him for the end of the movie, is to get him to kind of loosen up. Yeah, I think that's a really good really good catch, man. That's I'd say there's no question that's, that's part of what they were doing. Another interesting piece of trivia, actually, talking about the set, the uh, CRS offices. Now, it doesn't come across in film because they cut this, but when they were designing the set, they actually designed the floor plan as a spiral, which was meant to mirror the start of the Yellow Brick Road in The Wizard of Oz, which starts with sort of a, a spiral that spins out and then goes along the road. So the idea was that he's, he's starting his trip, and The Wizard of Oz is obviously referenced later in the film, <clears throat> but again, it never really came across because that's interesting. Uh, taken through, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and then 
It, now that you mentioned it, I did write something down about, you know, when, when he was doing his psych test, he says when the maze comes up, his answer was confused. Confused, right. Yeah, so again, showing that this man is someone who cannot handle getting out of his routine. And I'll get into that later as to why. I mean, there's so many ways you can look at this, but I don't want to say it now because it'll the podcast will be done then. <laughs> okay, we don't want that. We no. don't want that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you know everything about the setup here is is really good. I, again, I really enjoyed Michael Douglas's performance. He's slowly starting to lose control, but he's still very much the protagonist in the driver's seat, right up until I think when CRS calls him to tell him that his application was was rejected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's when he kind of starts becoming unraveled. He's never been turned down for anything. Yeah. So so I thought that was kind of an interesting way to open it. And that way he's not expecting what uh, what comes next with, you know, with the Harlequin in his, in his driveway. So what did you think of the CRS taking, uh, taking over the, the newscast there? Oh, it's awesome! But I want to—I want to mention one thing before we get get too far. Do you, right. Did you notice who his secretary was in his office? Like, do you Nicholas mean sec- uh, Elizabeth Dennehy? Yes, <laughs> Shelby. <laughs> Shelby. That's right. I did notice that. Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought I'd—I yeah. thought I'd mention that. Is that? I've always wondered—is that Brian Dennehy's daughter? I'm uh, not yes, sure. I, I do believe she is. Ah, oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I always wondered if they were related, but yeah, I do believe I do believe so. It's kind of a shame I don't really see too much of uh, Elizabeth Dennehy after her two-part appearance in Star Trek: The Next Generation, and obviously just um, a, a few seconds above a walk-on part in this in this film here. So yeah, so you're you were at the Harlequin doll. So let's yeah, the doll, the uh, the newscaster uh, that CRS has taken over. Uh, what did you think of this? Okay, so for me, this was. I hate to say it already that it's the highlight of the movie for me. I do love how Fincher really took this atmosphere. And this is his first instance where you're starting to get into that chaos and paranoia. That's really going to be a main theme of the film moving forward. But I just love the way he filmed everything. So yes, I love how, how the newscasters broad, uh, how the broadcast is being interrupted, but I loved the clown. I loved the fact that when he pulls up in the driveway and that clown looks like he's wearing a bathrobe, I'm not sure. At least it looked like he was. So obviously in the position in the bathrobe of maybe where his dad fell. Yeah. Right? That's right, so that's yep. what they're trying to uh, symbolize, and what's really starting to start to get him to unravel. So then he brings it inside, and I love that when he first realizes that because that whoever that broadcaster was and telling him there's a camera in the house, and he's looking around. I love that when he finally realizes it, there's a close up to the doll's eye. The camera yeah. pans closer and closer and focuses on the doll's eye. I love that shot. Very, very Hitchcock, I would say. Yes. Uh, and uh, I love that. And that that's just building the atmosphere. Like, it's already so lonely and desolate in that big, huge living area that he's watching the TV in. He's obviously enjoys, like, he's waiting. I think it was, not even know if it was this scene, but in the same scene before he was waiting for his ex-wife to call him on his birthday. Because he seems like he in, he knows he's lonely and he enjoys being pitied almost. You know, I, I don't know. Like he was yeah. almost like he was ex- he was waiting for that call. He goes, "Oh, you you missed it. You almost missed it this year." Yeah, 
you know? Yeah, and, it, and then he yeah. wanted to, it's like he was waiting for her to call and then he couldn't wait to get, get her off the phone. He wanted her yeah. to get away. So it's like, he doesn't want someone to get close to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting catch there. And I hadn't really thought about that piece of it before where you're right. He's waiting for her call notes that she almost missed it this year and can't wait to get rid of her. He certainly relishes his solitude on his birthday there. So just a few moments before this conversation with his ex-wife where he's pulling his dinner out of the oven there and he's putting everything on the tray and he's uh, getting the cupcake and putting that there and getting a ball of wine. He's actually humming to himself during this scene and he's putting together his birthday dinner for himself alone. Yes. And he loves it. Or at least he's telling himself that he does. Yeah, he's telling himself that he does. Again, it's routine. The transition to Act 2, or at least what I see is the transition to Act 2, when he walks into the San Francisco airport and everything's in slow motion. We're seeing it through Nicholas's eyes now. He knows the game is on. He's got like this heightened awareness going on, right? So he yeah. sees like that couple having a conversation in sign language. He sees the janitor with the uh, the key ring, you know, again, the keys. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was a really, uh, really cool moment. And we know that we are now taking our first steps down the rabbit hole. Yes. And this is also, as you said, the rabbit hole, which is a good catch. I mean, Alice in Wonderland. But again, it's your first signs of that paranoia. I'm surprised yeah. like he slept that night in his house knowing that they hijacked the television feed and the ca- they put the camera in the clown. Like, that's fucking creepy. It was so, creepy. Yeah. yeah. So but, I don't know how he got sleep. I, I wouldn't sleep. I, and then so I, that's just no, me. Any, any normal human being wouldn't sleep. I think you would have just stayed up all night just sort of staring at the clown. Yeah, probably. That's what you would have done. I, no, I, 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 I probably would have put clown makeup on. And then throw, <laughs> throw, throw that clown out and then sat in that chair and just stared. That's probably stared, what I would have done. Yeah. yeah, that's what you would have done. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I think that at the start there and because of his rea- – sort of how the next day goes with his with this heightened awareness there, he's starting to have fun here, I think. Yeah. Are you talking still at the airport or beyond that? Well, just – just earlier, like with the clown, as creepy as it is and as creepy as the, the newscast was, I think he's starting to have fun even with this uh, creepy surveillance clown in his house. Yes. No, no. Any, and you can tell even later on he's – before it gets really serious, he is having a bit of fun. Yeah. He's enjoying he, it a little bit because that's where the strings start to unravel a little bit, right? That's right. So. Yeah. Yeah, but going back to the airport, I wanted to mention one thing. So, ask you a question: Is CRS that clever that they actually ruined his dress shirt on purpose with that leaky pen? Well, I guess, or is that just happenstance? I guess the question that you know you have to ask now is the central conceit of the film, and that is: Are they able to engineer? sequences of effect of events so minutely in order to drive the story so the pen is sort of the first the first sign that their engineering experience is here so Mm -hmm. uh you know what i think that that's a question maybe we can save to the end because i think that's a really meaty one that we can get into i thought it was great i mean again this isn't something that happens to him his order his orderly world is starting to to uh, crash down a little bit or starting to buckle a little bit and just in the bathroom stall there, he didn't even know how to handle a request from a guy who just wanted a hand. Yeah, I loved your uh, spare square reference there. <laughs> <It was> perfect. 
The uh, incidentally, a pair of hands was played by the director of photography for for the film. They thought he had good hands and a good voice. I, I suppose <laughs> hand model. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hand model exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. He was yeah. not master of his domain, right? He I was guess. not master of his domain. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, so that's the start of Act Two. Uh, you know, a couple of you know, we go see Anson Bear. Uh, what do you think of this exchange here? I don't know. Again, kind of like going back to the with you, going back to last week's episode with UHF and talking about R.J. Fletcher. It's like, do we really need to know now again how much of an asshole and a control freak this guy is? Uh, it's a scene that I yeah. think was kind of unnecessary. I think all they really wanted to do was make sure he didn't open his briefcase and to show that he wasn't in full control. Yeah. I think they could have done it quicker. I, I didn't think the scene was really necessary. Yeah, I'm kind of mixed uh, on that. I, I agree. It's it's a pretty elaborate setup for what we're basically doing here, which is which is the briefcase, a, a, the payoff of which isn't really that uh, exciting later on. No. Uh, but that being said, you know, it's it's part of a misdirection. I mean, in listening to the commentary on this film, one of the questions that David Fincher said he asked himself when making the film is, is an audience going to go for 30 minutes of red herrings? And that's basically what's happening here. So is the audience going for 30 minutes of red herrings? It helps to have those, all of the misdirection, you know, the razzle dazzle in the audience's eyeballs. And then underneath is where all the sleight of hand happens. So it could be that, that's exactly what he's, he tried to do and pulled off because we're here saying, well, I didn't really need it. And they could have done this a little bit tighter when really what happened is this is all setting up the briefcase and it works. Mm-hmm. You know, we buy what happens to him. So, yeah, I think it's kind of hard to say, but just asking the question, maybe they did. Maybe they did succeed. Maybe. I still think it was an unnecessary saying, but that's just me. Yeah, it, it seemed a little bit much maybe for him to have to get on an airplane and do the whole thing there. But if it gets uh, Armin mueller stall into the film, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, so then awesome. he's okay. I haven't seen enough of his work, so I can't really comment too much. I just remember him in this and X-Files. That's it. Yeah, you know, yeah, he was pretty good in X-Files, a small part there. So I guess just going on, I guess what happens here is is that after exchange with him... He ends up at a hotel, I believe, correct? No, he he gets back on a plane, goes back to San Francisco to the same restaurant to meet Conrad for dinner. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, because there's there's some voiceovers of a, of a telephone conversation between Nicholas and Conrad, I think when he's playing racquetball in the first act, just sort of setting up a dinner date. And then as he's sitting in the restaurant... He asks if there have been any messages from Conrad Van Orten. And, and so you know that he's there to meet Conrad, right. who never shows up. Right. That's where we're at. At that point, he gets his uh, clothes messed up again because Christine spills copious amounts of red wine all over him. I, I liked her line. She's like, oh, looks like the uh, cleaning bill is going to be more than the suit. And he just looks at him and is like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> the bus boy's coming. The bus boy's coming. <laughs> so what did you think about the chase you know, they go to the hospital, the chase down the alley, and and so on. How does how does this play out for you? To be honest, a bit empty. It was not very exciting or thrilling. It left me scratching my head. I mean, the, what I did put in the notes because it's been so long since I've seen this is 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So he she gets fired. He he goes out thinking it's part of the game, guessing correctly. Some guy faints in front of them, right? Then the ambulance comes, yeah. and then yeah. they go away, and then they get dumped into the garage parking garage, which they think is the hospital. And then right. it cuts power, and then they get locked into the elevator, and then the key turns the elevator on, or something like that, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, and then they end up in the CRS floor. Yeah. And then they got to escape the security. Right. I don't know. I felt yeah. it was kind of. I don't know. I I, I wasn't. I wasn't into it. Uh, I I think the only thing I did like and I did notice is that he. I think he's having fun in these moments. I think I think a part of the security chases uh well is then they did have to he did have to jump from that fire escape. Yeah. And he landed in garbage. So again, this is more just them showing that he is becoming less clean cut, more less luxury upper class. It's moving him from the 1% to the 5% to the 10% and now after he gets dumped in garbage maybe he's in the 20% range there. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I mean, there isn't a lot of uh, a lot fulfilling story-wise in in this chase here. Uh, the only thing is that, like as you said, when he left, when he chased after her after she gets fired, he uh, he's actually left a note on his table which says, "Don't let her get her get away." So he doesn't guess that it's part of the game. He knows it's part of the oh, game. He knows at that part point. of the game. Okay. Yeah. And and yeah, I agree. He's he's having fun. I think he's having fun here with the chase. There's no question he's enjoying himself at this point. He also thinks this is sort of the scope of it. It's it's like a big elaborate plank, prank. It's fun. Yeah. It's a bit diverting, but it's nothing more it's not than serious. that. It's, it's not, not serious. It's not serious. Yeah. No. So then I guess then because they're all dirty, they go to the his office building. She takes a shower there, so he gets a glimpse of the red bra. And then he goes to a hotel, correct? Uh, no, leaves. then he goes home. He sleeps in, so he gets the, which again is part of his world becoming more and more disordered. As his assistant has to call him, he's slept in, and she uh, gives him a message that the hotel called his office saying that he's left his credit card at this hotel that he's never been to. Right. Right. So that's right. when he ends up at, at the hotel with the, uh, with the room that's been completely trashed. Uh, and here he freaks out. The cocaine on the, on the coffee table, you know, the pictures, uh, the place is a total mess. Yeah. And this is very Fincher. This is out of yeah. um, like even some of the chase scenes and the atmosphere outside the very gloomy, gritty type of lighting. That's Fincher too. Uh, but I also like this scene here is the most, obviously it hits you over the head. It's very seven. Yeah. And that's interesting that you, that you bring that up. I mean, you know, this is a movie that I, I can. I think it's trying to be very careful about what it's showing you and what it's not showing you. And and again, just listening to the the commentary, uh, David Fincher talks about some of these points. You know, he, he's saying like, what you don't, what you know, what don't you do? What are the things you do? What don't you do? Because you know, if you just really ratchet up the tension, you can run the audience ragged. You know, and you you don't have those moments where you kind of pull back a little bit. You got to be cautious of of engineering too much, right? Right. right. So. You know, I know you wanted a sort of a clean and simple take on it. Again, you mentioned Hitchcock, uh, sort of a, you know, that's really what they were going for is lighting the scenes well, not doing too much camera work, not doing too much editing, just light the scenes properly and let the actors read, read their line, do their performances, which I think is a very David Fincher thing to do as well. Uh, but you're right, this, but this scene, they kind of needed to do a little bit more engineering there. They needed to cut it quick. They needed to show the chaos. They needed to put 
Nicholas in a really rough spot. Now he knows that shit's serious. Yeah. So now he doesn't like, this is the first step into again, that as you mentioned, chaos and extreme paranoia, like what is happening now before it was just like, Oh, might be a prank. Oh, but now it's serious. Like I could go to prison for this shit. Um, Right. Exactly. Right. And then it just keeps it's again, it just keeps escalating. It'll just keep escalating until the end. So Yeah. yeah, but we can move on. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's move on. I like the scene when he barges into Anson Bear's hotel room. You know, he's sitting there having brunch with his wife and his daughter. He, he's throwing the pictures there and he's freaking out. And Anson Bear is just chilling. Takes a real condescending puff off a cigar. I, I loved how understated Armin Mueller stall play, played that scene. It's a small thing. But again, it puts Nicholas uh, on edge a little bit. Yeah. Clearly something's up because he thought Anson Barrow's behind everything to this point. And now that, that he knows that that's not the case, right? then who, I think this is the point where he's like, okay, who are these CRS guys? Because they're starting to play dirty. Agreed. Yeah, it was a good scene. I liked how, as you said before in your summary, that he, Armin Mueller star Bear played it cool and classy and just took it. And it's like, oh, you gave me a great package. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so. I just, I just love how he smoked a cigar in that scene. He, I wish I could look that cool smoking a cigar. Uh, he didn't look that cool. He was just calm. I think you should watch <laughs> the scene again because he, that guy was cooler than the other side of the pillow in that scene, man. Smoking uh, that cigar was great. Uh, uh, <laughs> Someone's got a heart on for this guy. I don't know. Oh, man, he's me. fantastic. That's <laughs> fantastic. Hey, man, you're the one with the one-handed clap. Uh, <laughs> Now, I, I did want to talk about the scene. So he goes home. The house has been trashed. And Conrad shows up. And, he, and Conrad's freaked. So they get in the car. And they're just tearing through the streets. And Conrad's saying how, you know, they, they fuck you and they fuck you and they fuck you. And right. just when you think the fucking's done, they fuck you again. Right? He paid them more right. to make it stop. Yeah. So it's, yeah. For, for the way you said it, it's like, it's like going through the drive-thru. They fuck you through the drive-thru, right? So it's like- <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Nice. Uh, nice. But, uh, but yes, I wanted to go back. I think we skipped over, if my timeline is correct in my notes, I think we skipped over something I did want to talk about. Another really great scene at the house is when he finds it disorganized and trashed. That's yeah. when all the um, graffiti, neon graffiti is there, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah. uh, again, one of my other favorite scenes of this movie. What did you think of that scene? And, of course, the choice music. I believe it's called White Rabbit. Um, yeah, White Rabbit. Good catch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another Alice so, Wonderland. Yeah. yeah so, uh, so what did you think of, of that song and its prevalence in this movie? And why that they, they chose that song? I uh, love the choice of the music. Uh, it has a real unsettling sound to yes. it. You know, it's very, it's very on edge. You don't... It's not the kind of song that you kick back in a chair with like a nice glass of scotch next to a warm fire. That's not this song. This right. song is razor's edge in your eardrums and perfect for this scene. Now, I don't know a lot about the song. I don't know the lyrics or anything like that. I did know it was called white rabbit. Uh, good catch, obviously a uh, nice parallel there. Yeah. It's an excellent choice. I mean, this song I guess was back in the sixties was these people were talking about protesting the war to Vietnam is my understanding of the history of the song. Obviously, it's about drugs as well, right? So just like anything in the 60s, they want to talk about about drugs, but then they'll also mix it in with the relevant social issue. Very Star Trek. Very Shatner. So, But this here, 
it seems like it almost like CRS chose this song because they're protesting not his upper class life, but him. Oh, who he is. And I think that's that's kind of how I looked at it. You know, that's really interesting. Uh, and I never, I didn't catch that at all because I didn't, you know, I didn't really research into the song all that much. Uh, but what an interesting concept that you could protest an individual for being who he is. Yes. Right. That's uh, that's really fascinating. Because yeah. I think when I can't correct me if I'm wrong, what happened when he actually finally got up the stairs and he realized it was like what okay. dead, dead pictures of his dad? Correct. So what what he sees, so he goes up the stairs uh, back to the study, which we've uh, seen twice before, which is obviously his his sanctuary, right? It's got the nice fireplace and the the big leather furniture and stuff. So in that room, it's been trashed. The the Harlequin's been set up in a chair in front of the fireplace. And in its mouth is the police file from when his dad committed suicide. So there's photos in there. Right. Also, on top of that, I don't really think this came across uh, on screen, uh, but in the script, there's a page on the top, and it's like it's a contract, and it says, like my father before me, I choose eternal sleep. Uh, just right. printed on a white piece of paper. Now, in the script, there was meant to be sort of a signature line where he would basically sign this as a suicide note, and that, that did, just didn't really oh. come across on screen, but... Uh, but yeah. that's but that's a good point, and I, I'll remember that because I'll bring it up again. Because again, okay. it's like a protest to who he is. Yeah, yeah. right. So they're uh, they're ro- so they're in the car. And Nikki's freaking out, and they blow a flat or they blow a tire. And obviously, neither one of these guys knows how to change a tire because uh, they have people for that. So when Nikki opens the glove compartment, all his keys come storming out. So let me ask you a question: Is is Connie in on it? Yes. Hundred percent, because in my opinion, from my perspective, he's like obviously he's signing up. He's the one who's g- gave him the card to go see these guys. Yeah, I think that this is, and I, I kind of wanted to save this for the end. This is, obviously this is his present. It wasn't letting him. It wasn't just about him sending him to CRS. It's the end goal that's his present. Right. Uh, and uh, and we can talk about that, I suppose, at the end. Yeah. Because so, I agree, this is his present. Yeah. Now, I, I want to suggest to you that Connie is still playing his game as well at this point and is absolutely getting thrown, put through the ringer by CRS still. And there's two reasons why I think that. One, regular people aren't good actors and they're not good at lying. And he is run ragged at this point. He's freaking out. He's tearing the lining out of the car looking for surveillance. He's yelling. He's hyped up. And regular people can't behave that way when they're put on. No, they this, just don't. Okay? Yeah, but he's also uh, hopped up on drugs. I think there was a well, hint at the beginning. He was like, a, in no, rehab a, and stuff like that. So. He, had, there's a, he had been in rehab. Uh, and even he admitted that in, the, in that scene that he had you know, bought crystal meth from the maitre d' of that restaurant when he was in college or something. You know, after having been through his own game, I presume that he's probably not on drugs anymore. But the other reason why I think that Connie is not in on it and is still playing his own game is because when he opens that glove compartment and those keys come out, Nicholas isn't looking at at him at this point, right? Mm-hmm. We are looking at Conrad just as he is by himself. And when he sees those keys and he looks back at Nicholas, that look on his face of surprise and betrayal 
It's very genuine, and he's not putting that face on because nobody can see him at that point. Just us. I understand what you're saying, but this is the one of the faults of the movie, in my opinion, is that, like, again, you're kind of handcuffed here because you have to keep the surprises for the audience because they've got a second guess Nikki. They've got a second guess. We'll get into it very quickly here. Oh, well, you know, when they start shooting at Nicholas and and Christine later, you have to take a leap of faith, right? So here, in my opinion, this scene is just more to fool the audience to show that CRS is a serious threat. It's more their con game. And he got him into serious shit. I don't think that Nikki's in on it. See, I disagree because I think that they could accomplish that Without lingering on Conrad's face when he picks up those keys, they could have shown him opening the glove compartment, the keys pouring out, and then cut right there. Right. But they very deliberately held on Sean Penn's face to show the look. Very deliberately. I I, under, I remember. I remember clearly. I, I just – I don't buy it personally. So it's it's good that you have a different take. It's interesting. All right. But, uh, well, let's, uh, let's keep rolling here. Yeah. I understand that. You know, they kind of needed to hash up some of their old childhood stuff. I don't know. I didn't really buy it that they would have chosen this point where they're both very heightened state attention to, to hash out some of those old childhood issues as, as Nicholas is chasing Conrad through the streets. Yeah. Uh, so that, that part didn't really ring true for me. Yeah, but again, it's, to me, it's the central theme of who Nicholas is in what's trying to do for him. And I'll get into that yeah. at the end. I'll bring up – I, I have some notes here and I'll bring it up at the end. So he uh, he gets into that taxi, which rolls off the, you know, drives into the water there. You know, there's actually a sort of a dedicated special feature on the Blu-ray for this one scene, how they shot it, how they figured out the underwater shots with Michael Douglas in the cab. Uh, it was pretty interesting, but... Was he, actually un- was he actually underwater? So yes and no. So what they did was they, they constructed this huge tank and had, and basically they just cut off the front of this taxi, right? Mm-hmm. So they filled, what it allowed them to do was sort of fill it partially with water. So not, the whole thing wasn't underwater, but they could get enough underwater so that when he, you know, he rolls the window down, all the water comes pouring in. But, you know, it, it, he's never really in any danger of uh, of drowning here. Uh, but I thought, but it was, it's actually really quite, uh, quite the effect. I really appreciate the practicality of it Mm. most of the effects that they capture in this movie are practical in-camera effects Uh, i would hope so because i don't really see the need for anything else (laughs) well no and they it's not that elaborate and they say as much right as you know you don't really need it in fact well we'll we'll come to it later with some of the cg that that is there uh, later on so sure um, so the only thing i have a question for you is and this is now at this point, this is the start of, even though I like this scene and it's exciting, because for me, it's uh, upping the tension. So you need that yeah. in the movie. The only problem here is, is now I'm starting to take leaps of faith. And I think they address it and they make, uh, Christine says something at the end, oh, they had a contingency plan for everything. Right. But but what happens if the guy didn't bring his tool? So you're talking about like, in the, the taxi. taxi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, they're setting okay. him up to like, you know, drown in the taxi. If he doesn't right. bring his tool, then right. the game's over. Okay. So I've got to, I mean, I we'll get through all of those things. Sure. Yeah. Let's then, just move uh, on. We can talk about it later. Yeah. So there's, you know, this is where he goes to the CRS offices with his lawyer and the cops. They've cleared out of here. And I think at this point, you know, we're wondering the game's gone wrong. I think even to the audience at this point, like the game has gone wrong. 
Yeah. So now it's like a con. Yeah. So, yeah. So now you're well, really right. you're afra- afraid for Nicholas. Like That's you're, right. You're, you're afraid for his life and you're afraid that they're really trying to steal his money. Well, he's afraid for his life. I don't know that we're thinking he's there's trying to steal his money yet because that's revealed to him by Christine after that scene. So when yeah. he goes to her house and then she's, she lays it all out for him, it's a con. You know, I thought this was really interesting as well at this point because – and this is one of the things that Fincher talks about in the commentary is how do you keep the audience guessing? Like first it's this one thing. And then we take you all along and then it's like, it's just about money. So how do you get the audience to kind of come along and say, oh, it's just about money? It's like, well, of course it's just about money. Remember how we spent the last 45 minutes telling you how fucking rich this guy is? Yep. It's a con. It's a, it's a con game. They're after his, is after his money. So I think once you kind of make that realization, uh, I don't know about you, but when I first saw this, I, I bought into that. I'm like, oh man, uh, that's, that's what's been going on the whole time is they're just after his money. I'll tell you, if it had played out that way, I would have been really disappointed with the movie. Yeah, then it would have been very simple, paid by numbers after yeah, that. It would have, yeah, they it would have become been. a B-movie after that. It would have been, yeah. yeah. Uh, so going on to Act 3, uh, I love him waking up in that crypt. So before we go on, I just want to ask you about Act 2, yeah. just at the end in the apartment. And, and before she drugs him and stuff, like there, she's in their apartment, her apartment. Yeah. So then when they she finds out, like he starts, you know, talking to the camera in the ceiling and knocks it off. And you get the CRS guys outside. What, what, are the, what the fuck are they pulling out? Like, the, it's like a cooler. It's like a tub. It's oh, yeah. I mean, like, I, I put that down. Like, what's the joke? That's the joke. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't get it. It's like, what? what's, are these are actually like cleaners. They're coming in to like, you know, sweep the floors and, you know, wax on, wax off. I don't get it. Yeah. That's a really interesting observation because I never noticed that until the last time I watched this movie for podcast. I never, ever noticed. And I've seen this movie many times. The answer I've got for you is I don't have a clue what the hell that guy was taking out. The only thing I can think of is in that garbage can. And there's no way because they wouldn't have had time to set this up. Is Maybe he had like squibs in there or something. Or, or because when we see the car uh, that Nicholas is driving pull out and we see bullet impacts on the car. Yeah. The only thing I think of is maybe that they were planting squibs on the car at that yeah. point. And that was what was in there, but I, I don't know why. Maybe, but then you know, like yeah. nine squibs take up like a whole garbage bin full. I don't know. I mean, maybe there was yeah. something else that was supposed to happen there and it just got, yeah, cut. I don't, I, it was just weird. It's just trying to make them look scary. Oh, what, what's in the yeah. box, right? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the eternal David Fincher question. What's in the box? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's in the box? <laughs> I'm doing the 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 head bob uh, the Brad Pitt head bob there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it was the George Clooney head bob. There. <laughs> uh, they're both the same man. <laughs> that's why they're there in a lot of movies together. And that's why they're so successful and rich and famous <laughs> and been in so many awesome movies. Yeah, What's in the box? A couple of idiots who bobbed their head. Uh, uh, great. Okay, so you're you you're in Act Three. I, I yeah, love the so, beginning of Act Three. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what do you think of that, where he wakes up in the crypt there in, in Mexico? I, I love awesome. that. Awesome. Visually. Just love the scene. I love how he's in that empty tomb. It's shocking to him. It's shocking to us. And obviously they're painting the, the – they're making a point. Now he's at the lowest of the low. He has no money. He's dirty. He's a bum. He's homeless. He's out of his element completely. He can't really get too much lower than this. But And that's where that line from before comes in. Now I am – you know, once I was blind, now I can see. 
Yeah. Because now he has to start begging for money. So this is where I was kind of getting into is this a commentary on social class as well. It's not just about that, but it's partly of that. Because now he has to, again, beg for money, beg for food, beg for a ride. Kindness, some some kind trucker for 18 bucks gives him a ride after he s- somehow manages to cross the border. I don't know how he managed that, but anyways. Oh, um, yeah, because uh, that never happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I forgot. Yeah, he did yeah. Uh, sneak across with everybody else. They, they don't have that Donald Trump wall up along the Mexico border uh, in 1997. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I loved that scene in the in the diner there where he walks in. He has to be at his – he's at his most humble because he's been yeah. humiliated. Yes. And when he drops the change there, that yeah. that, that wasn't in the – that was what happened. He Michael Douglas dropped it. That ended up being the best the best take because oh, of that. Gr- great acting. I mean yeah. I'm, I'm not going to bash Michael Douglas ever. He's an amazing actor. I yeah, love, love the guy. He's great acting here. Yeah. yeah, great great acting here. He really sells it. We really see the growth of the character at this point. It's not easy to make a movie where your protagonist is a douche, and he is in this movie. But we're we go with him, right? Yeah. Through the whole movie, we like it. But now we're really with him because yeah. he's he's us now. Yeah. Right. He's on our he's on our level now, uh, and that that scene really sealed it for me. I love that he had to pawn his father's watch, his Rolex, uh, for probably a couple of hundred bucks. A watch that's probably worth twenty five thousand. It's a Rolex. It's a Rolex. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do, man. Like we only do episodes uh, or movies in the podcast where there's a callback. A there's a oh. yeah, where there's a callback. Okay, no, no, it's gonna be a callback or something, right? Well, we're we're three for three so far. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. a Rolex. <laughs> and then our final final episode will work in where we did a callback to the final episode in our first. And it'll be like a <laughs> yeah, you know, a the circle is now. Yeah, the circle yeah, is now no, okay, exactly. So he's back. It is. Uh, he's back in San Francisco. And he's got and, and nothing left. Obviously, the watch was his last possession. The house is getting sold to auction. Grabs grabs the gun. He's off to uh, he's off to he's off to meet the wizard. Right at this point, uh, which I love that. Like I love how he says in the car, "I'm not interested about getting my money back. I want to pull back the curtain. I want to see the wizard." Yeah, yeah, I love uh, that. I love too. that. Yeah. I love that line. I love how unsettled he is. Like at this point, he doesn't care that he has a gun at a zoo and there's kids nearby. He's ready. He is just, he's just completely unhinged. He's completely unhinged. Yeah. Yeah. And and I love that. I love love, that too. And what was really frightening about how unhinged he was is how calm he is through this whole thing. Like when he's in the car and he kind of gets, somebody tries to carjack him. Yeah. Oh, I love that scene. Yeah. Totally calm. Pulls the gun out. And he says, what's the line he says there? He says, it's a Rolex. (laughs) (laughs) I think he says, I'm, I'm very fragile right now or something like that. (laughs) Totally deadpans it. That's great. Michael Douglas, ladies and gentlemen. It's a Rolex. No, it's, that's a great scene. I love that yeah. scene in the car, yeah. the carjacking. So, okay, yeah. so then they're getting, he's, he obviously infiltrates, I guess, the CRS floor, sees all, all the people there. The only yeah. question I have now is, how in the world, this is again, again, a leap of faith with all movies, if all the other actors in on this, or the people who are in with in on this with CRS are, are in this cafeteria, why isn't the James Re- Reborn character also there? Why is he at the zoo? I know that they planted that commercial on TV, yeah. Yeah. but they couldn't have possibly known where he was going to meet his wife and then played that commercial on the TV. 
So again, these are like all leaps of faith. He's gonna okay. he's gonna catch it at the right time. He's gonna call the agency looking for him. So is it like when he called the agency that was CRS, and then they told him to go to the zoo yeah. with his kids? I'm, yeah, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, maybe that's that. I I would argue that yeah, that's exactly how it works. Okay. Because they've had their eyes on him ever since he was in Mexico, right? Right. They would have right. followed him all the way back to San Francisco. They would have known exactly where he was, who he was <clears> with. Yeah, it looks like I just talked myself into some coherence. I think you – well, that's an improvement for you because you usually talk yourself into utter incoherence. <laughs> that is true. So the lucidity that you're demonstrating so far on the show I think is quite refreshing. <laughs> Thank you for that. No problem. Um, what's interesting about the scene in the cafeteria there is uh, David Fincher says that he would have preferred in, in hindsight to have only, you know, five, six people in there. Not everybody that we've seen through the whole movie. Like, for example, when Conrad is chasing or sorry, when Nicholas is chasing Conrad through San Francisco there after their spat and Conrad runs down a set of stairs and you see sort of a bum in like a small corner there. That guy's in the cafeteria. Really? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. that's He's o- got a big, overkill. overkill. Big, long beard. I mean, I understand what they're doing is that it, it, what they're trying to demonstrate in that scene is they had every single piece of this whole thing under tight, tight control. And everybody who was there, like a movie set, you don't see anybody on a movie set who's not supposed to be there. Right. But right? then they're again, all players. So it, this is demonstrating that that is what this is. So we get up to the roof, you know, the main climax here. How did how did how did this work for you? Well, I mean, obviously, I love the destiny, the the rhyme that he would fall yeah. and choose suicide after he loses everything, after he thinks he killed Nikki. The only thing is, is from one standpoint, it works. From another standpoint, it to me, it's just too much. I don't like it necessarily because the sight, like one, I mean, that fall still would hurt somebody, right? You're passing through breakaway glass, but there's trusses there. And it, it, the weird thing is the psychological damage that would happen to everybody. Cause I think they make a point where that Armand Muir stall bears character says, Oh, I was quite an entrance. I've never seen expected something like that. So, I mean, like these people would all be like scared shitless, maybe. Even though that that tarp is there, that, that but I mean, you know what I mean. It's just even his the psychological damage to him. Even though now he's free, I just didn't buy it. It's just a little too much, too convenient. I mean, at that fragile state of mind, I know they did a psych test on him earlier, so they probably made an assumption or an educated guess that he would choose to drop himself off the building. I mean, he could have chosen a different place to walk. He could have shot himself because that was a real gun. So these are things that are just a little bit too much of a leap of faith for me to accept. And this is, again, even though I love how Act 3 starts, I'm not a big fan of Act 3. I don't like yeah. – I, I like the ending where he, he ends up at and the message, but I don't think Act 3 really works. And I think you even said Fincher said the same thing. Yeah, and Fincher did say the same thing. So you're certainly in agreement with with Fincher. What he says is, is that he thought that the problems of Act 3 – could be ironed out if basically they just kept their foot on the gas. And, and so that's what they did. They, they keep their foot on the gas for the third act, maybe to drive over some of the plot, the plot holes. I, I feel a bit differently about act three. Some of those logistical problems, like you say, like, Oh, he could have tried to shoot himself or, you know, he has to walk off the building in the exact right spot. You know, if you kind of take a look around, it doesn't look like there's really anywhere else for him to walk off. 
the the roof. So I think that those are logistical problems that that we could solve probably fairly easily. This is certainly the part of the movie where you have to take. I don't know if leap of faith is the right word for it, but this is certainly where you need to suspend your disbelief the most. Uh, I will agree with that. As far as you know, breaking through the the glass through the through the ceiling, as far as avoiding injury, again, I think that you know these are things that are are explainable enough in the context uh, of the film. Okay, so then my question to you then is, what is the meaning of this film? What's your take? That's a really difficult question to to answer in a good way, though, because, you know, obviously we have the top layer. This is a psychological thriller. What really resonates for me is when we start, and even when we watch the trailers for this movie, was the question, what do you get for the man who has everything? And what the movie is saying is that we see that that Nicholas has nothing at the start of the film. And through stripping away everything that he thought he had, they've given him everything. Mm-hmm. He, he understands now that really what's important at the end, what's really important, because even he's like, it's not about the money anymore, right? For him, all that he actually does have left is, is Conrad, is his brother. Right. His family. That's all he has left of his family is his brother. And he, he's basically treated him like shit for, right. his, for his whole life because he's an asshole. So they gave him that back. They took away everything else that he thought was valuable. And they gave him that one thing that actually means something. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they undercut it a little bit because you know, he gets everything <clears throat> back. Right. I mean, he still has all of his money and still has his company and all of that stuff. He has been humbled before some other key players in his life. Uh, Anson Bear, I mean, he was a, he acted like a total ass in front of Anson Bear, and so he was laid bare before that man. You know, that's something that he was also given. But he wasn't really humbled before anybody else. Maybe his ex-wife a little bit, but that doesn't really mean anything. So what's this movie mean? There's there's the critique of the upper crust, the one, the, the 1% of society. You know, this is many, many years before the uh, Occupy Wall Street business that that happened so this so some of those messages maybe resonate with audiences i think today more than they would have back in 1997 but that's there's always been the you know the double-breasted suit wearing cigar chewing banker as as a trope in in film right and out there so that that's also been laid bare here right yeah those guys well they don't have it all true but I also look at it from a different point of view. So what you're saying is is correct, and that's one way to talk about it. The other way I talk about it is he has he, he's talking about why he always had to control him, and then my, um, Nicholas is saying, "Well, did I have a choice?" Yeah. So it looks like ever since his father's suicide, he has been handcuffed. He's been on strings. He's been a puppet to his father's life. His lifestyle, his his the family business um, didn't have a mom or no, they did have a mom, but I guess she wasn't the same afterwards. So he really ha- didn't wasn't able to take care of himself. He was never free. He was always a slave to that type of lifestyle. That's why I think you showed those pictures of when he was frolicking. <laughs> <laughs> I go back to that. He's like, tra la 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 la. I keep seeing him like, I see Michael Douglas like dancing in a fountain <laughs> with like a speedo on or something. That, that, when you say frolicking, that's the that's the sequel, the game two, the game two. We, we now frolic. No, but so you, even the teaser trailer. 
So I know the teaser trailer had, if you've seen it, it has two meanings. It shows like this stick figure on a puppet, uh, on strings, being pulled, and then the cords are cut and he free falls. So obviously two meanings there. One, he's being pulled around and jerked around by CRS, which is what this game is. And then they can cut you loose and you there's a serious threat to your life. And the other thing here is, is that he is now free. Because they have now shown him that there is more to his life than his mundane, stupid, snobby routine and his loneliness, his perpetual loneliness that he's put himself in and all that responsibility that he had to bear since that, his father's suicide has was really thrust onto him. He was the man of the house. He had to take care of everything. Yeah. So this was way of saying, you don't need to do that anymore. That's my birthday gift to you. And that's why he says, thank you. That's why he now can see he was once blind, but now he can see. I absolutely agree with that part there. That's, that was the point of Conrad's gift at the start was to release him from that. Yes. Yeah, I, I can I completely agree. It's an interesting parallel you draw with the teaser trailer with the marionette there. I never I never drew that connection. And that that's uh, I think that's an interesting way to to look at it. It's usually you don't need to deconstruct the uh, the teaser trailer, but it's nice when you do. It means yeah. you put a lot of thought into it. And that and that teaser trailer was David Fincher's uh, idea. He did he did envision that himself. Oh. Usually, it's the oh, that's interesting. Yeah, M- moving on from from that. So then I have, I I just wanted to kind of comment on just the direction here. Even though I do enjoy some of the atmosphere and tension building that Fincher does, I just kind of, after seeing Seven, and this is his next feature, I find it's a step down. I'm not as entertained. I'm not as engrossed. I didn't find anything special. It just seemed like it was almost any director who could have filmed this movie. And it's not that the movie, I just didn't find that he brought anything special to this movie. I don't know if you understand. I also think, I think the thrills really aren't, aren't there. Uh, Like there is some tension building. There are some good scenes, uh, some creepy atmosphere building, as I mentioned before, but I just really wasn't into it in the last few times I've seen this movie. It's one of those movies where I watch and I go, it's just not as good as I keep watching it over and over again. Uh, aside from Michael Douglas and I guess Sean Penn a little bit, really wasn't crazy on the acting, not really crazy on the score. It's very low key. That was the point. I get it, but it's just not something that's draws me into it. And it's also not something that over time, like in a lot of scenes, there are a couple of scenes where it does, but it doesn't really generate atmosphere appropriately, in my opinion, the score. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you because I think that this is this film is an excellent example of a filmmaker showing restraint. We don't see that very often anymore, certainly not in mainstream Hollywood movies. While this movie wasn't a hit, it was certainly mainstream Hollywood. And instead of trying to inject the thrills and the chills, uh, Fincher consciously stepped back from all of that. Uh, we know he's capable of delivering that from having watched Seven. Uh, we know he's really going to amp it up in his next game, Fight Club. <clears throat> Here he lets the story tell the story. He lets the actors act. Uh, one thing Michael Douglas did say about uh, working with David Fincher is, you know, he really created the right atmosphere for the actors so that they could do what they do. The cinematographer, uh, the di- director of photography, a big partner, for Fincher on this film, the lighting was talked about. 
multiple times in the commentary. It really stood out to me because it didn't stand out. Everything looked great, and it was meant to just evoke that feeling of isolation, uh, but not too much of, uh, of an engineered set. Uh, lots of location shooting obviously helps with that. I mean, you got to ask yourself, you know, when you're when you're making a movie like this, what do you need to show the audience? What does the audience need need to know? Um, I, I understand what you're saying. I just feel that there really wasn't a vision. It was just I'm going to film it and let the actors carry the movie. But I, as a director, I'm not bringing a vision or a style to the way I'm making this movie. It felt. I hate to say it, it felt almost very TV movie feel. Not in terms of production quality, but just in terms of vision. I didn't mm. get anything special out of the way it was shot, out of the way it was directed. The acting is okay, except I didn't like um, Christine's acting. That, that I didn't like that actress, Deborah Unger, whatever her name is. Uh, I thought she was terrible. Terrible is a really strong word at this point. Like she was adequate. She was pretty bad. She was fine. No, she, she was, was the ca- she was that character. You want to know how she got cast in this movie? Speak, you know, because I the trivia. Uh, so, I, and I'd, I'd read this and I thought it was a joke, but Michael Douglas does reference this in the uh, commentary when they were auditioning for the role. She landed on his face. She did not land <laughs> on his face. Not far off though, because her manager sent. Fincher and Michael Douglas sat in on the casting because, you know, he's obviously casting it and they need to find somebody who works with him. So her manager sent them a tape of what was essentially a, uh, a sizzle reel of her having sex, ah. uh, which was an audition. <laughs> yeah, which was an audition for, for the movie uh, Crash. That was what she did uh, for, for auditioning for that film. So it was like three minutes of, as Michael Douglas says in the, in the commentary, three minutes of her fornicating. And, and they thought it was a joke. But really? the rest is history. Yeah. You know what? I thought she she was good. I thought she carried herself well in, in the movie. She needed she was what she needed to be. Obviously she's not winning an Oscar for it. She doesn't I don't see her a whole lot around anymore. But let's talk about what we have been kind of dancing around, which is the conceit of the game. Again, it's just as we mentioned before briefly, it's just taking a little bit of a leap of faith here. That's part of the reason why, you know, even though I enjoyed the tension building and it's starting to up the escalation, it's just once you know that this was all just a actual game and a setup, I find it hard to believe that they pulled all this off. Okay. And, and, so, and so, in when you when you're done watching the movie, it, it, it's partly a turnoff. Just just another thing as well as I wa- I wanted to make a mention here. Uh, even though this is a commentary on upper class society versus middle class and lower class society, it also makes me a bit mad and it's a bit hypocritical that this game really can only cater to the one percent. Uh huh. Yeah. So so it's kind of like um, a betrayal of that message in the end. This man who is like super rich, even he looks at the bill, Nicholas, and is shocked at the price tag. Yeah. That's a really interesting observation. I actually kind of like that little exchange with it when they're looking at paying the bill. But you're right. This game can only be played by that 1%. There's no way anybody else is paying for this. Now, that being said, because the game is tailored to each participant, maybe maybe there is a game for, for the middle class, for the lower class. Yeah, I guess in fucking up the lives of the upper class. <laughs> I don't know. 
Well, so yeah, they, exactly. So they what? I mean, so they what? Treat him better, I guess. He's not a oh. cold, cold snob like it in his in his office meetings and his to his secretary. I, I guess you know if you were to take a look globally, I mean the yeah. I guess we know why Shelby was such a bitch, right? Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I was she didn't get out of the get out of the game when Nicholas got out of the game. No, I, I, I mean I see what you're saying, but um, you do an and run around to me again. <laughs> <laughs> I will snap you back so hard you'll think you're a first year cadet again. <laughs> Don't forget it. Not to get not to get too sidetracked here, but that adds an interesting layer for me because you're absolutely right. I mean, the, if this is how the game's meant to be played, it's only being played by rich people. And what do they get out of it at the end? Well, you get you get to know that it's okay. Your fortune's intact. But again, that being said, we don't know what somebody else's game would look like. What did Conrad's game look like? I think that would be an interesting story. Yeah, uh, I think it's called uh, the movie Blow. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I don't know that that one had a happy ending. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think Sean so, Penn needs to play the game. That's a guy that could use a dose of reality. Um, yeah, he's a good actor, though. Yeah, he's okay. He's not a bad actor. He's he's a, he's an adequate actor. He's pretty good. He's okay. Okay. He's fine. okay. What were you going to say? Uh, so I guess just to kind of wrap things up, is do you, do you think that this movie has stood the test of time? Is it still? Obviously, there are some issues as you talked about Occupy Wall Street that people can latch onto today. Uh, but I mean, those those issues have been there and prevalent uh, throughout time since the system has been in place in reality, right? But just from a filming standpoint, do you think the way this movie has been made, the way it's been shot, everything does it? Is it is it a gem? Is it a rare antiquity? Does it? stand the test of time can you fully recommend this to today's audience i'm gonna have to, i say yes i think it stands the test of time i think it holds up the look of the film is very classic so it doesn't fall victim to some of the filmmaking crutches of the late 90s early 2000s even in today with really quick editing over-the-top special effects, as we've talked about with the directing style, which we have kind of a difference of opinion on, but it has a very non-invasive style, which means it doesn't stand out. Uh, There isn't anything in this movie that really dates it too much. I think it looks great. I love how it's shot. I love how it's lit, as I've said. Uh, Michael Douglas, I mean, Michael Douglas could read a shopping list to me, and I'd be compelled. You know, the guy's fantastic. I love... The twists, the turns, absolutely. This 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 holds up. If you haven't seen the game, ladies and gentlemen, you need to watch the game. Okay, I, I agree that it's filmed in a classic style. It, it is. It won't date in that fashion. The only thing here is, is after watching it this time, uh, I, I do feel a little less excited and enthralled. I'm not as engrossed in this movie as I used to be. My memory served me kind. To this movie it's just i feel while i like the message even though as i mentioned there's a betrayal to that message in the end it's just not exciting enough for me or enough of a thriller to make me say it is a gem it's it, it, it's not something that i would say run out and watch this it's a passable movie the uh, michael douglas is great in it I mean, the directing isn't bad. It's just nothing special. So on that note, I'd say if you haven't watched it, yes, go watch it. It's definitely worth a watch. But I wouldn't put it into a category that this is a rare antiquity. Drop what you're doing. Go out and watch it. I guess there you have it, folks. That's that's the game from 
David Fincher. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Harry, do you have our next film? Yes, I do. I thought I'd take a little bit of a different approach this time. I wanted to pick a movie that I haven't seen before, that is obscure, that has I've been kind of scared to watch. <laughs> am, I scary, am I scaring you already? <laughs> well, I mean, you scare me just when I pick up the phone, you're scaring me, so now I'm horrified. Next week, if we can make it through it, prepare for us to discuss and analyze... The Jennifer Aniston mega blockbuster hit Leprechaun. <laughs> Are you ready? No. <laughs> Not at all. But we're gonna have a blast on that one. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's 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 on Netflix, so you we don't we don't have to go hunt it down. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to it. And uh, until next time. Thanks for listening. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.